Acker and Blacker, the guys who brought you the thrilling adventure hour, present Acker and Blacker's Star Wars themed book release variety show slash benefit for public council. A star-studded night full of Star Wars themed comedy and music. Featuring performances by Weird Al Yankovic. Open Mike Eagle. Michael Giacchino. Zach Sherwin. It's a town with a bar where the music's lively. Gabby Moreno. Sarah Watkins. Take a look at the beating up the wrong guy. Featuring appearances by Steve Agee, Mark McConville, Janina Gavankar, Matt Thorley, Busy Phillips, and Ahmed Best. It's just been endless green lights for me since, <laughs> since 97. The entire two-hour show will be available for download on May the 4th at thrillingadventurehour.com. Proceeds benefiting public council. Perfect it is. Remember, thrillingadventurehour.com on Star Wars Day. And then join the resistance. Now entering Nerdist.com. Today's episode was recorded at ATX Television Fest. Were you there? It was the best, right? Were you not there? Why weren't you there? Season 6 badges are now on sale. That's for next year. You don't want to miss this. They've already got some amazing things cooking. Go to atxfestival.com. Get your Season 6 badges there. Uh, Also, they're putting up uh, video versions of all of the podcasts that I'll be releasing and all of the panels and stuff, uh, some that I won't be releasing. Go to a television experience. Dot com, a television experience.com, and you can see the video version of this and uh, many other panels and events that happened at ATX this year. Hope to see you in 2017. I would like to introduce our moderator, Alan Seppenwall. Hey there, welcome to the OC panel. I won't say the last line of Luke's dialogue, but we have a a bunch of core members of the creative team, starting with the show's creator and executive producer, Josh Schwartz. Uh, Executive producer, producer, sorry, Stephanie Savage. (laughs) Writer and producer, Lila Gerstein. And the woman who picked so many of those memorable songs is music supervisor, Alexander Patsavis. (laughs) Josh, you were like 17 years old when you created the show, right? (laughs) Roughly, roughly. Like... What was the impetus? Where did the idea come from? 
the impetus came from, I was from uh, Providence, Rhode Island. <laughs> All right, yeah, somebody. Uh, and I came out to uh, California to USC for <laughs> college. All right. Trojans. And uh, that is where I first met the species known as water polo player. And uh, saw all of these uh, women falling in love with these guys who just were like extremely chlorinated with their hair all messed up. And they wore Speedos. I didn't get the attraction, but uh, they did. And, uh, and that was sort of my first exposure to uh, the Orange County lifestyle. Um, so ordinarily, you know, you've always maintained that you've never seen an episode of 90210. I'm still skeptical. But... I mean, maybe like one here or there. Stephanie, right. Stephanie's the aficionado. All right. So, but the, the model of soaps at the time is sort of they were, you know, teen soaps were driven by the female characters, and you've got a show built around the two sort of uh, unofficial brothers and Sandy, the, the dad. Uh, how did that come about? Well, that was just uh, kind of what... I wanted to write about it at the time, I guess, about, you know, uh, brothers and fathers and sons, and we talked about it, that it was unusual to do a show like that that was a, a nighttime uh, soap for a network, but uh, luckily, back then, I didn't know better, and, uh, and Stephanie, as my producer, was very encouraging of that, and, uh, and, 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 you know, that was kind of my way into doing uh, a nighttime soap, definitely having sort of a neurotic Jewish guy who could kind of comment on it while it was happening made me feel much more comfortable writing it. Uh, well, I didn't hear a shout-out for all the neurotic Jews in the audience. <laughs> all right, there we go. All right. um, how comfortable was Fox with the neurotic Jew of it all, exactly? Um, I would say medium comfortable. <laughs> uh, it definitely, uh, part of, obviously, that was Seth Combs, sort of Josh's way into the show, and it was also what made the show, in many ways, unique, um, that this character was there that had the pers perspective that he had. But because it was unique, I think it was challenging for the network, who wasn't used to seeing a character like that in their glossy nighttime soap. And so there were a couple conversations about how nerdy should uh, Seth be. The Coens were originally uh, named the Needlemans. <laughs> <laughs> they got a little less Jewish. <laughs> but uh, luckily, you know, then you find somebody like Adam Brody who walks in and just makes it all work. And, uh, and the ladies uh, like, and I think everybody felt comfortable. Everybody felt comfortable that this could be a romantic uh, lead for the show equal to, to Ryan. But, but Josh did get the question that um, if uh, Ben was the Dylan, then who was the uh, Brandon? And he did not understand what that meant. <laughs> um, Summer is only like a guest star on the pilot. She's got a couple of lines. So Marissa is the major young female character. Stephanie, what do you remember in your early talks with Josh about the development of that character? Well, what I remember most is a line that you'll hear um, a little later in the script um, that I loved when Josh, uh, when I read it, when he wrote it, that um, Marissa was, you know, so beautiful she was a little embarrassed by it, um, which I loved sort of that. That was evoked... also based on my personal experience. <laughs> <laughs> it evoked so much about this girl um, and just sort of the awkwardness of uh, being a great beauty at that age and, and not kind of trying to figure out who you were. And then the next thought I had was like, how are we going to cast that? Because <laughs> that's a pretty tall order. Yeah, and Olivia Wilde, who wound up being on the show in the second season, she read for Marissa. Yeah, it came down to Misha and Olivia for it. Um, and they were both, well, Misha had actually been a child actor. She'd been in The Sixth Sense and other things. Olivia was brand new. Uh, but Marissa was obviously a character who, who Ryan needed to save, you know, uh, in some respects. And uh, Olivia Wilde needs no saving. <laughs> so uh, she's pretty tough. 
All right, so you had, you'd never even been on staff on a TV show before. All of a sudden, you're, you're mid-20s, g- given your own show, and you've got these seven episodes that you've got to do coming on right in the summer. How crazy was that time? It was pretty crazy. I think the craziest part was because they wanted the show on in the summer. We, we literally went right from the pilot uh, directly into the start of the series. So while we were making the pilot, we were also editing a kind of like 15-minute Roughly teaser reel of the first two weeks of shooting because we needed the show to get ordered before we even wrapped uh, the pilot. So that was pretty crazy, and we kind of knew what. The, and we had a writing staff already going, uh, and again, I was very lucky to have Stephanie uh, with me. Otherwise, it wouldn't have happened. And uh, we kind of knew it was all building to Tijuana. And then after that, we were pretty confident we were going to get canceled. <laughs> <laughs> so when Fox, when you start seeing the numbers and the show is a success, and you're going to have to keep making it, was that a, a happy realization? Oh yeah, of course, of course. You can. Yeah, it was interesting too because it aired in the summer. Um, and again, this is a whole, like, we're going to talk about some of the stuff regarding the show, like it happened in the 1800s, but, like, <laughs> there was no iTunes, there was no Netflix, there was no Hulu, there was no way of seeing, you know. But so in the, in the summer, they were able to run this show, like, three times a week. Uh, and so the first week it premiered, and we were like, okay, everyone thought it was going to do better, but uh, we'll hang in there. And then the following week it went up, and then the following week, and it kind of built through that whole summer run. And so we were very fortunate that we got that kind of... Uh, pattern of episodes to run. Now, before we move a little deeper into, into that first season, uh, I got to ask about Luke's iconic line from the pilot, welcome to the OC, bitch. Where did that come from? Uh, when I was at SC, there were, there were all these guys that were as, uh, you know, like these water polo player guys who would refer to Orange County as the OC. Because when the show first premiered, a lot of people were like, nobody calls it the OC, don't call it the OC. It's just OC, which, you know, doesn't roll off the tongue. And I did hear people talk about the, the OC as if they were referring to the LBC. You know, they were trying to make it sound uh, cooler than it was. So it was always a little bit of an ironic uh, title for us. And, uh, and then at some point it was like, you know, we got to work that into the show. And who better to deliver that line than Luke? Um... You're obviously a big music fan. For the first, those first seven episodes, you were picking all the music by yourself. How exciting was it to be able to sort of put some of your favorite bands and artists on TV in that way? Uh, that was super fun. I mean, yeah, Steph and I would run out of editing and go to, like, Amoeba Records and buy a bunch of music. Cause, uh, and at a certain point, uh, and again, we talked at the beginning because there was a real music scene in Orange County at that time that was more of the sort of sublime, no doubt kind of uh, music, um, which was great, but, but we really wanted music to kind of illuminate the interior lives of the characters and kind of be a character in the show itself. So um, it was a great opportunity to put, put music on that we were listening to at the time. And luckily, again, because it was the you know, 1800s when we made the show, there was only uh, radio, which was extremely consolidated at that time. Uh, MTV, TRL would play like the same 10 videos. And so there was all of this music that just no one could hear. And as soon as we started putting the music on the show, uh, we found that there was a, a whole audience of people who either also loved that music or were discovering that music with the show. And that became a really exciting component. And then by episode seven, uh, I'd used up all the music on my iPod, and that brought in the great Alex Pitsavis. All right, so let, let's talk about that, Alex. When... <laughs> were you even aware of the show before you got a call about coming on it? Microphone. We were all aware of the show, of course. So what, what did you think of Josh's taste in music? I thought... Um, from, from afar. I thought it was awesome, you know? Like, it was... I had many friends that were working on the show as well, um, but I, I didn't think there was a chance for me to work on the show, so I was watching as a fan. 
So when you finally got together, sort of what, con what were the conversations like in terms of what kind of music Josh wanted, what kind of things you thought you could bring to the show that he hadn't already? I think you had already defined the kind of music that you wanted. I just needed to find more of it. Right? I mean, yeah, no, and Alex is funny. I mean, a lot of stuff that we were putting in the show was stuff that had been out for a little while because we had obviously bought it and, uh, and we're now using it. And Alex was able to kind of uh, expose to us all this stuff that was definitely in the, the lane of what we wanted to do but hadn't come out yet and, uh, and get stuff even earlier. And eventually, like, you know, the show blew up to the point where, like, labels were asking you to premiere songs on the show. Yeah, the day we got the call saying the Beastie Boys wanted to premiere their new song on the show, we're like, oh, this is cool. Yeah. <laughs> I remember going to uh, Capitol Records yeah. to hear a, uh, a little-known Coldplay song called Fix You. And they played us the album. Um, we sat right. in the room, they played us the album, they said, pick the song that you want to have on the show. Right. And we're like, okay, we could do that. <laughs> and, uh, and we heard Fix You, and we're like, That's, that right. will work. We don't know what the scene is yet, but that will work. No, we had lots of special opportunities on, on the OC. We did six soundtracks in four seasons. Um, we had the bait shop, which of course we had a lot of, uh, of live, live bands playing, um, the death cab and the killers and modest mouse. Um, and then a series of covers, which were, we started our first one, I believe was Jem doing maybe I'm amazed, um, which, uh, was a, you know, which was interesting to clear because of the gender switch, um, as well as a little known artist, you know, little known writer named Paul McCartney, who we had to clear it from. Uh, and if we you leave also, if, if you, you leave, leave yeah. yeah. So it was, you know, so many, um, so many opportunities for music, and then so much excitement amongst the music business to be a part of the show. I assume there was a lot of like pressure from bands, like who really, really wanted to be on the show. Were there ever any like artists or songs you chased and you couldn't get? They didn't want to be affiliated in one way. Why do we need to focus on the negative, Alan? <laughs> Arcade Fire. <laughs> Tell me more. I, that's all I'm going to say. That's all. I'm but say. honestly, that was, I mean. It's a pretty small list. Like, we were really lucky. Um, Rooney, where did the... <laughs> it's, it's one of the most memorable episodes of the show. They go to see, the, they go to see Rooney play. Luke asks, which one is Rooney? Um, where, where did the idea, and how did you land on them as the band they would go see for that episode? Well, I think, I think we talked about bands at that moment who felt like they were in the, in the you know, zone, uh, who, would, who would appear on camera. And also, there was a connection with uh, Phantom Planet, right? You want yes. to talk about that? Do you remember that connection? Yeah, they were okay. brothers. Yeah, they were brothers. Yeah. So, um, no, they were, they were um, somewhat in the family yeah. and, and fans and uh, in Los Angeles. And you have to think, um, in order to get up, TV time and band time don't really have a lot in common. Um, so we had some, you know, 7 a.m. pickups for a band to, like, to be on camera all day. So there's a lot of scheduling um, and... Typically, the kinds of bands that we were interested in are the kinds of bands that toured colleges and small venues, and a lot of that stuff happens in the fall after the summer festival circuit. And so we were always sort of hoping to get people on their way through town in L.A. So we, you know, we just worked at it. Um, Chrismica, another memorable invention of the OC. Is that, a, is that a holiday you and your family had celebrated? It's not a holiday uh, that, that we celebrated. It was something we talked about in the room. Stephanie wrote that episode. It was her first episode writing on the show. Um, and, and, uh, but it felt like it really, you know, spoke to what we were trying to do with the show. It, it, you know, we were, we had, we had a lot of, uh, you know, Judaism on the show. We had a Passover Seder on the show. Yeah. But obviously the idea was Sandy had married kind of the ultimate chicks of goddess. And what would, and what, 
what child would that would come out of it? It would be somebody who would uh, realize a way of getting even more presents <laughs> than, uh, than a single religion. S- Stephanie, when you were writing that episode, sort of how did you figure out what exactly the rules and traditions of Chrismica were? Well, the episode was the sort of the theme of it was about, you know, blending or integration that was Ryan was someone who'd had a pretty negative track record with Christmases. And so he didn't have positive feelings about the holidays and Seth was caught in a love triangle between Anna and Summer. In a Wonder Woman costume. (laughs) And so that idea of um, trying to make the best of things and kind of cherry pick, um, seeing how far Seth could take that, which uh, Chris McCaw was a positive example where it worked, and Summer and Anna was a little bit more complicated than that. It was an opportunity. I, I did own that sweater that Seth wears in that episode. And that's I very nice. could finally do something positive with it. Well, speaking of Anna, like, that's, that's a character arc that on a sort of more traditionally paced show, you would have taken like a year and a half to work through all the Anna stuff, and Samara kind of came in and out very quickly. You went through a lot of plot over those, the first season. Yes. Um, in hindsight, would you have done anything differently or not because oh, that sure. first season was so good? Uh, well, thank you. Uh, yeah, I mean, look, wisdom is great, and knowledge is power, but ignorance is bliss. And uh, I don't know what that means, but you all figure it out later. But, um, you know, part of it is we didn't really know the rules, and so we were kind of making it up as we were going along. And I think part of the fun of that first season was how much story we were going through. Um, and then season two started, we're like, wow, we went through a lot of story last season. And I think, I think you know, you obviously you learn as you go, and it was lessons that we took with us on on shows afterwards where if you have characters that people really love on your show and are connected with, you should try to keep them around. And, uh, and there, was, there was a lot of Luke stories, I think, we left on the table, Anna stories, and so on and so forth. Um, and then you had to sort of basically start the show over from scratch in a lot of ways in season two. You introduced a bunch of new characters, including the one played by Olivia Wilde. Um, you know, having now done it for a year, what were the challenges going into that second one for you guys? I think... I think uh, to that point, introducing a bunch of new characters and trying to keep the show. We, we were trying to avoid um, something that had been done for a while and obviously done for good reason, which is just take your kind of core couples and just re-couple them. Um, meaning, you know, Seth would be with Marissa and Ryan would be with Summer. We kind of felt like that was verboten. And so uh, we wanted to try to introduce some new characters and see, and see what clicked. Um, Lila, you came on in the third season, which is when we first met Taylor Townsend, who is sort of the one... Yeah, everybody loves Taylor. Taylor is the one late addition to the, the young cast that people really took to. What are, what are your memories of her introduction, and at what point did you realize sort of that she's not a villain, like she's going to be awesome? Um, well, the writers loved writing Taylor Townsend. We loved talking about her. She was so annoying and so delicious, and her dialogue was so fun, and she was smart, and she was wily, and she was... Um, and so I think we, as a group, fell in love with her, and we're like, we have to keep her around. Um, and, you know, sometimes in season three of a show, like, the writers, we needed, we needed a new voice, and we needed... Um, she, she really excited us. Season three also reintroduced a character we hadn't seen in a long time in Caitlin, who was once Shailene Woodley, and I don't know what happened to her. And she became... <laughs> Where is Shailene? And she became Willa Hall. Uh, does Shailene, like, ever send you bitter letters or anything? I think Shailene's doing just fine. <laughs> um, young so- Shailene did send us a really sweet letter when she drew a picture of... China, uh, her, China pony. her pony. Yeah, yeah. Her alopecia-ridden no pony. Yeah, China. <laughs> um, but... 
What were, what were you guys hoping to do when you brought Caitlin back in in the form of Willa Holland? I'll give that to Lila because she actually wrote the introduction, uh, the reintroduction of Caitlin Cooper with an incredible monologue that uh, <laughs> made everybody laugh. Um, I think Caitlin came on. She was the new villain, but she had I, she had a dark past, and we she had a good nickname, Mini Coop. Mini Coop. <laughs> she had a great nickname, and um, I. I, she came back on. She seemed innocent. We had only seen her as a little girl, and she came back, and she was a grown woman. She had, like, I think she had, like, a drug dealer boyfriend. <laughs> she was really... Um, but she was, uh, you know, she came in. We needed an engine to wreak havoc on our characters who were... They were... Can't let Julie pieces. Cooper, you know, yeah. have her moment of peace for too long. Well, well let's talk about Julie and about the adult... Yeah, she. That's yeah. true. It was Let, a nice trailer park. Let's talk about Julie and the adults on the show because that was another thing that really made the OC stand out. Was they were great kid characters, but like Sandy and Kirsten and Julie were also really and Jimmy and Jimmy. Yes, were also really interesting characters who you told a lot of good stories with. What were the challenges in sort of trying to keep their stories in play while also being in kid world a lot of the time? Yeah, I mean the first part we cast in the show was was Peter Gallagher, you know, as Sandy Cohen, and we really wanted to yes. Um, and, you know, he was a great actor who had been in, in Soderbergh movies and Coen Brothers movies. And we really wanted to kind of send the message that this was uh, a show that could be for adults as much as kids and that we were going to be as invested in those stories. And we always talked about the idea that you could pull the kids out of the show and do the story of, like, you know, Kirsten and Jimmy living next door to each other and Sandy, kind of the, those high school sweethearts finding each other again late in life. So we wanted to make sure those stories were potentially as interesting without the kids. And then as the kids get older, obviously, it, it becomes challenging to keep them as involved in their kid lives as parents because the kids now are becoming sort of, you know, uh, grown up in their, in their own right. Um, at the end of season three, you did something that's easily the most divisive thing that happened on the show. You killed Marissa. Some people were very upset. Some people celebrated, you know, <laughs> because we're monsters. Talk about your Why did you decide it was time for Marissa to go? Okay. <laughs> It's complicated. Uh, there, were, there was a lot of factors involved, and it was something we really wrestled with, and, and, uh, and, and uh, there was reasons both creative and also um, in terms of the, just for the show itself, in, in terms of where we were at that moment with the network, and, and there was a lot of reasons both creative and cynical, I guess you could say. Um, and, uh, and it's something we still wrestle with. I mean, Steph and I, you know, we still talk about it and, and, and play it back. And, and I think, you know, to your point, there were some people who celebrated, and at that time, those were the most vocal people. Those were the people that had control of, like, whatever the pre-Twitter, you know, TV without pity forums were back then. Um, and, and what we found was, and this, is, this was a really good lesson for us moving forward in, in the rest of our TV lives, is that if somebody, uh, you know, posts something online, uh, and Steph always talks about this, it's, it's a one-to-one -one ratio, meaning that person... Uh, isn't necessarily speaking for a thousand people. They are just speaking for themselves. But it feels like they're speaking for a thousand people because they are speaking the most vocally. And then after we did that, we realized there was a lot of people who hadn't been speaking who actually were quite upset and very attached to that character. And there was a lot of uh, anger and fan art that came our way afterwards. <laughs> Uh, but it did sort of, moving beyond a lot of the, the melodrama that Marissa had been going through, allowed you to go for a much lighter tone for that fourth and final season. Um, did, did you feel like you had sort of lost the comedy a little bit in the middle years? 
Yeah, I think, I mean, Taylor and Caitlin, as we've referenced, were certainly comedic characters, but I think we were all feeling like we wanted to get back to the humor that had been such a big part of the show uh, in the first couple of seasons. And uh, what better way to do that than bring on Chris Pratt? Chris Pratt. Chris Pratt, Chris Pratt uh, playing a didgeridoo, I think. So. Well, it was Che fun to write for. Oh, Che was incredible to write for. That, that was, season four was a really fun season for us. And did you know, like, the whole time that this was going to be it? Or at what point did you realize? Yeah, I think, we, I think going into it, we had, a, we had a pretty good sense that that was going to be the final season. And so it was very freeing creatively. And we did some really weird stuff in season <laughs> four. Like, Che falls in love with Seth's spirit animal. You know, stuff that we would never have uh, would what, never been able to didn't try. did like, Taylor wear a groundhog costume at one point? Yeah, there may have been that. There was, like, a French talk show. Japon's. <laughs> Japon's, yes, exactly. So, uh, you know, it definitely, we took some chances that I think we probably would have felt uncomfortable uh, doing before that. I mean, do you feel like if, if the ratings had been going differently, there was life in the show that you could have done a fifth season? Yeah, I mean, I would say after season four, we were feeling like, oh, we sort of get what this more adult version of the show is. It's tricky, too, getting kids out of... Like, when you transition a teen show out of high school, there's a reason that on 90210, they spent four years in high school, and then they went to college, and it was exactly like high school, like... There was a reason they did that. We didn't want to do that, but what we tried to do was um, had some challenges in it. And I think once we were in season four, we were like, we can just kind of do this forever. All right, we're going to go to audience questions in just a second, but first I just wanted to kind of go down the line. I'm curious, we were talking about music before. Does each of you have, maybe not the favorite, but a favorite musical moment from the show? Uh, sure. Alex, you want to go take this one first? It's really hard for me. It's very hard for me to, to pick one. I spend so much time with so many of them. Um, but I think... My favorite sync use, which is which is an existing piece of music, was be dice during the New Year's um, episode. I loved that, um, and I loved all our bait shop appearances. I mean, they were it was they were fun to put together. There's lots of gossip about them all that I you know that's not appropriate for here, but super fun. Um, for me, I guess it's the most obvious, but season one, Hallelujah. Um, an uplifting one when when uh, Seth and Summer kiss for the first time on the coffee card. I love that moment in the Patrick Park song, The Place. Yeah, I would say uh, Matt Pond's cover of Champagne Supernova for the Spider-Man kiss is definitely... And, uh, and, the, and the most indelible one also for me is uh, Joseph Arthur's Honey in the Moon because that was... Um, and, and the Imogen Heap song, Hide and Seek, well, yeah, has course, had like, yeah, yeah, this yeah, huge that. life after the yes, fact. Yes, exactly. <laughs> All right, so um, I don't know what the situation is with microphones, but if people have questions, raise your hands, and we'll figure it out. We got someone right over there. Just skip. Yeah, shout it out. Guys, we have, we have a microphone stand over here, so if you want to line up for additional questions, you can do that while we talk about this. Isn't that what we all do in life? Uh, I think we felt like we had played through that triangle, and therefore, uh, 
it was time for Anna to go. Seth had sort of made his, his choice. Um, and it was time for Seth and Summer to get together. But in retrospect, I, I think we still talk about the possibilities of an Anna-Luke uh, relationship that could have run, run for many years. All right, uh, do we have other questions for the mic over here? People can, there we go. Hi, um, in the final kind of montage of the series, you see what happens with all of their lives and kind of the next years and it ends with Ryan. How do you guys settle on what happens with them? Were there other things you considered putting in there? And thanks for being here. I mean, I think we, we had big discussions. It was very exciting to kind of be able to see our characters grow up and see the future. And um, we, we spent quite a long time discussing, and I think this is what we all agreed was the right thing. And, and we like bringing it full circle where Ryan got to see a yeah. kid that he could, you know, potentially extend the same uh, favor to that, that Sandy did to him. All right. Next up. Um, I have a question about the It's a Wonderful Life episode. <laughs> Just the um, kind of the creative process behind that, the decision to do that, you know, how that came about. Well, we had done usually something special for the holidays. We did a Christmas episode for every season. Um, and in our final season, we were talking about just sort of what was a shape that we can, um, you know, sort of lock into. And I think, I think John and JJ thought it was pretty stupid <laughs> at the beginning. They're not here to defend themselves, so we can talk <laughs> freely about them. Um, but then I think I kind of, like, dug my heels in and was like, you can do whatever you want with this, but it somehow has to relate to It's a Wonderful Life. Um, and they came up with something that was, I thought, just completely amazing. And it allowed us to, to sort of what, what would have happened if Ryan didn't show up in the OC, um, but it allowed us to bring back uh, cast members and come up with these crazy scenarios of who would have ended up with who and um, just how broken that world would be. And then also to tell kind of a serious, uh, more kind of healing story um, about the death of Marissa. So um, I personally, that's one of my favorite episodes. Hi, first off, First off, I just want to say that the show basically shaped me who I am. I watched this in middle school, and I'm continuously recommending it to my friends today to make the mid-2000s live on forever because the best music was then, in my personal opinion. Mid-aughts. Yes. <laughs> but um, my question is, so you mentioned uh, Morgan Heap's hide-and-seek, that iconic scene at the end. Did you think that it would become that iconic scene that was played on into the SNL skit and everything. Totally. We wrote that and we're like, wait, eight years, and then Lowly Island is going to do a commercial video of this. Uh, no, I mean, that was, again, Alex would make us these comps, and at the beginning of the year, uh, got the comp and heard that song and said, can you please reach out to Imogen Heap and just make sure they don't license this song to anybody, because we're going to use it in the finale. Don't know what that is yet, but it's going to, it just feels like it's so, like, part of the, the show, and then the way Ann Toynton directed that episode and Norman Buckley cut that uh, episode and used the music and brought it, you know, used it initially for Caleb's funeral and then obviously brought it back for the end. It just really uh, made it something that, uh, you know, we're really proud of that it, it endures, even in parody. It's the highest compliment. <laughs> Love watching that video. Still do it all the time. <laughs> awesome. Thank you. Hello. Thank you guys for coming back and uh, allowing us to relive our greatest high school moments. Um, <laughs> I just had a question... I'm from L.A., and I just love the show within the show of the Valley, and I think, Alan, you talked about that in Ask Alan, but 
Um, when you guys went to in the LA episode, did you guys ever think about doing a spin-off with the Valley and having Colin Hanks, you know, be the, be the star? Yeah, we, we got really into the Valley. Yeah. We, at, at that point in the show, we had basically deconstructed our own show and, uh, and had it live on in, in parody. Um, but that was probably as far as we should have taken it. So that was good. With Paris Hilton discussing, you know, Thomas Pynchon and the use of magical realism, which she initially called magnetic reality, uh, which we... we Corrected her. Uh, that was that was pretty fun. Did, did you have like a series Bible for the Valley? Like how deep did it go? Oh, it went deep. Fourteen seasons of the, of the Valley. <laughs> At least. Yeah. And then it also had spinoffs. What was the one that had like the real skanks of yeah, <laughs> the Valley? Yeah. Yeah, because we were also living through Laguna Beach, the real OC happening while we were doing our show. And the real housewives. And the real housewives of Orange County. So then naturally the valley. It's all your fault, Josh. It is all our fault. If only we could have gotten one nickel from those real housewives. (laughs) If only our agent was in here somewhere and failed to secure that deal. Um, But... um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, the idea of, yeah, the real skanks of, of, the, of the Valley would have been a really good show. All right. Thank you, guys. Um, I mean, a- after this, you guys, the two of you went on to do Gossip Girl, but there's not... <laughs> at, least, at least on network, there's not really a good teen soap right now. What, what's going on? I don't know. I mean, I, 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 we, we feel you because we would want to watch it or, or make it. But uh, I think right now we're in a period where I don't know that the next great teen drama is going to be on a network... It's going to be on network. I think you're going to find it somewhere else. Um, and that's just fine. Something else that starts with an N. Something else that starts with an N that's not network? Anybody? No? Um, hello. Thank you for being here. Um, I, and people might disagree with me, I kind of love Oliver. Um, Interesting. <laughs> an Oliver head. All right. Rare breed. He's the best, worst thing ever. And... He stresses me out so much. <laughs> so, and I just want to hit Marissa. But, and, you know, she comes to her senses. Anyway, um, I wanted to know, how did that come up? Who was like, let's have this insane person just wreck everybody's life? I want to know. Well, you know, when you're doing 27 episodes, you need some new story material. But I believe Oliver made his debut in the Christmas episode. Stephanie, would you like to talk about Oliver? Why, yes, he did. Um, uh, after the departure of uh, Anna and Luke, um, we realized that uh, we didn't have enough <laughs> yeah, characters on the show. Um, and in a similar way that... Uh, Luke, Luke and Anna were still around. We think we knew they were okay. leaving. Yeah. Okay, we knew they were yeah, leaving. Sorry, fact yeah, check. Right. Fact sorry, check. fact check. It's been a while, guys. Um, that uh, we just wanted somebody to come on the show that would, you know, uh, wreak some havoc, cause some problems, force our group to kind of test their bonds and, uh, you know, see how strong they were. And, and stress some viewers out. You were stressed out. Thank you. All right. I think we have time for one more audience question if someone has one. Otherwise, I can ask something. But All right, uh, right down there on the front. Uh, I, will, I will say that I believe I came up with the Yamaclaws, but I completely failed to trademark it in any way that could be monetized moving forward. I because my family still celebrates Christmas. I agree. If only, again, my agent were in this room and could have helped me in some way see the, the value of that. What are Seth and Summer up to today? What do you guys think Seth and Summer are up to today? I mean, I think that's the more interesting thing when shows end, right, is letting... You want to give audiences some closure, but you don't want to give them complete closure, I think, and let them sort of live on in, in people's imaginations. All 
ladies and gentlemen, the creative team of the OC. We're gonna go and then you're gonna have a script reading in a couple of minutes. California, here we come, right back where we started from. Oh, hustles, grab your guns, your shadow weighs a ton, driving down the 101. California, here we come, right back where we started from. California. Nothing's gonna stop me now California, here we come Right back where we started from A pedal to the floor Thinking of the war Gotta get us to the show California, here we come Right back where we started from Ben Blacker. Uh, I'm the uh, creator of a, a podcast called The Writer's Panel. Are you familiar with it at all? That's very, that's heartening. Thank you. All right. Let's not go crazy. 
go a little crazy. For those of you who don't know, I, I talk to television writers about the business and process of writing television on it. And if there's a show that you have liked in the past five to ten years, we have had, if not the creator, then someone from that show represented on the podcast. So check it out. There are 250 episodes to listen to. Yeah, it's a fucking lot. <laughs> But I'm here now. Uh, we're going to talk about casting, you guys. Brad. See what they are? At the end. Please introduce yourself. Tell us who you are and why you are on this panel. <laughs> I'm a casting genius. Brad, Brad DeLima. I'm vice president of casting for NBC Universal Cable Entertainment. So I work on all the scripted shows within Universal's cable portfolio. That's USA Network, Sci-Fi Network, Bravo, and E. Welcome. Yeah, you can clap for him. I'm Brian Michael Bendis. I'm uh, the, one of the creators of Jessica Jones and one of the creators of uh, Powers on the PlayStation Network. Uh, I'm Jen Houston, and I, I'm here, I think, because I cast Orange is the New Black. But I do other stuff, too. I cast girls, and I cast movies, and I kind of cast whatever I like. If I don't, I don't. <laughs> so, not like what I like, like I get so much, but I only cast things I respond to, okay? All right. I'm Tracy Lillianfield. Um, I'm a casting director, too. I uh, cast Grace and Frankie. That might be when I'm here. Um, and upcoming CBS Half Hour with Joel McHale called The Great Indoors, which has a lot... Uh, uh, we had a lot... We have a lot of diverse actors in it, uh, really on purpose. So that's a place we can discuss. Cool. Great. Um, and I'm Justin Spitzer. I'm the creative, uh, creative creator and executive <laughs> producer of Superstore on NBC. Oh. I love that show. Okay. All right, let's um, <laughs> let's sort of get let's get a baseline for how casting is done, so then we can really start to dig in and talk about the issues involved. Um, when when casting a project, uh, and Tracy, maybe you can start to walk us through this. How does it begin? How does the process begin? Who's involved first? Obviously, you know, Justin has, say, written a pilot. What happens then? Once I'm hired, you mean? <laughs> I would say once you're hired, yeah. yes. There is um, a whole development process. We don't need to talk about yeah, that yeah. here. But once, um, a, once a pilot is going. Right. We're one of the first people hired on the project. Yeah. yeah. Um, so close collaboration with the creators, talking through what they have in mind. You have a casting concept call with the network. You hear what they have in mind. Um, and you start thinking. The minute you get, before you even get the job, you're thinking, you're thinking, you're planning, you're plotting. And, uh, you know, it depends. The process is really different whether you're working with somebody you don't have never worked with before or somebody that you do because you have sort of a shorthand you know somebody's taste if you're if it's people that you've worked with before um and if it's somebody new you tread lightly and you try to figure out and hope and pray that you're kind of have on the same page and have the same kind of ideas mm -hmm. uh, but of course ultimately um our job is to help their vision um and kind of hope hope that, that your vision is the same or that you can end up at a place that you're both Pray. happy with that your vision is the same. <laughs> well, let's, let me even then take a step back and talk to Justin and Brian about even in the script phase, you know, when you're writing something, very often you will have a type in mind or a, even an actor in mind. Um, can you talk about translating that to these conversations with the casting department? Um trying to think. Uh, yeah, I mean, you start... I, I think every writer probably does it a little differently. I, I will often 
at the very start of the process when I pitch it, have just an actor in mind, sometimes even a picture of that actor to pitch to the network. So it's like the kind of person I'm thinking of or the kind of you've seen this person in that role. So you can kind of think of that as a starting point. But then over the course of writing it, that character inevitably changes, usually so much so that that prototype you had in mind at the beginning is no longer relevant at all. Um, and then you just kind of just go into it with as open a mind as possible, I think, um, recognizing that whoever you cast is going to bring their own energy to it. You probably will do some rewriting of the pilot before you shoot it just because you want to fit whoever you cast the best. And then inevitably in series, that character is going to change even more as the actor makes it their own and you start writing to the strengths of that actor. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Um, and, and Brian, I wanted to ask specifically yeah. on Powers, which has this source material where yeah, that's, that's, they kind of know what the characters look like. It's a unique thing and I think it's something that's probably popping up in your lives more and more, is that with a comic book source material, not only is there source material, there's very strong visual source material. Fans. And fans of that character. (laughs) And, you know, we have, and even though Powers is an indie book, it was a successful indie book with the following, and Dean the Pilgrim won, like, an award for best character, you know? So (laughs) there are fans of the character, and then, so you're thinking in your head, well, we're going to find someone who looks exactly like this and then uh, a good friend of mine just said oh by the way if you find someone like that great but don't don't let that define you go for energy go for spirit you'll see what I mean mm-hmm. you know and uh, lo and behold in, in our situation like I'm just going to use Susan Hayward as an example the character in the comic is a short blonde haired short White woman wearing. Yeah, well, no, no, she's short. We got. Susan Short. But, uh, That's the key to her Susan, character. Susan is African American from Georgia, um, but she came in, and she should literally teach a class on auditioning. It was one of the best auditions anyone in the room had ever seen. What, I have, what made it great? She just came in all attitude. First of all, I don't know if you found this, but uh, you know, having and I'm new, I'm newer to this than all of you, so I apologize for. Um, uh, not knowing as much, but I'm always baffled by, there's a Game of Thrones style of acting, which is a lot of whisper acting, but you can't hear them over the air conditioning in the casting office. And I'm sitting with headphones going, well, you know, it looks like they're really into it, so I want to listen, but you, I can't hear you. And then, uh, and then uh, in comes um, people like Susan, who just comes in, and she knew she had like the best arms probably in the business. And she, she, she wore the tank top, and she was like, boom, and she just looked like a cop, and she looked like a, like, you like, oh my God, I would totally watch this woman all day long. And um, my, my, you know, we listen, I'm, I'm the father of a multiracial household. So there's a lot of things that happen in the world that just looking at white boy, you think I might not know about, but I do. (laughs) And having just this week had a, as I'm tucking my eight-year-old African-American daughter to bed, and she literally asked me if Donald Trump becomes president, will they take me out of this family? That yes. So I know that we're living in a world where there's a lot of weird energy. So I'm going to tell you this story in kind of because it makes people feel better. But when um, Susan auditioned and we were in the room with the network and the studio and all the presidents and the final decisions were being made, and she won the um, she won the role against women who looked exactly like the comic book character who did a lovely job, but she. Just just had that extra extra thing. Nobody brought up 
her skin color or race. No one, no one even goes, and we're okay with, like, no one even asks the question. They go, best actor got the part, and I'm like, yes. oh, the world's okay. Okay. <laughs> well, it's, it, yeah, no, it's about the essence. It's about the essence of the character, and, like, I don't know if you guys, I mean, I'm New York-based, obviously. I've seen Hamilton multiple times, <laughs> and you're sitting there, and you, even my first time when I went to go see it, you're watching it, and it's just so amazing. You don't remember, you don't even realize until you leave the theater, like, oh shit Jefferson was black what like you're like what because he's so good or Washington is a black guy it doesn't even it doesn't even cross your mind because they're so talented because the material is so strong and that happens it's just I mean if we're doing blind casting you know the definition of blind casting I think could be many things I was blinded when I watched that. Are there, you know, this is getting to the heady stuff a little sooner than I'd anticipated. Sorry. But, right. <laughs> Sorry. Thanks. Thanks well, for that Donald Trump sorry. story. No, no, so we're like crying. Like, oh my God. I'd rather talk <laughs> about this. Uh, are we there in TV yet? No. And that's what I was going to say. So, <laughs> theater has a long, yes. long history of colorblind casting. Much, much different than television. So how do we get there? You have great, I mean, creators like you that are accepting. Because could, Susan could have walked in the room and they could have all said, wait, she's black, and crossed her off the list. Right. So you need the openness of the creators and the producers and the networks to be open enough to be say yes. <clears throat> that's what has to happen, really, truly, at the, at, the, at the end of the day. That's what has to happen. And you have to have, you had a great, who was your casting director? Um, I'm, I'm blanking, I'm sorry. Well, whoever she or yeah. she was, yeah. no, did she you was such... Right. I know, I know, I know. <laughs> But we're on the panel. Here's, honestly, here's, how, here's how mental I am. If she was one of the X-Men, I would remember her name. <laughs> this is, but, this but is, it, I do this with family members. But the thing <laughs> is, so, so, so props to that casting director who was like, you know what? Yes. Bonnie. Her name is Bonnie. Sorry. Bonnie. Was it New York? Finnegan? Oh, my Bonnie Finnegan, who's been doing this for 30 years and is a genius in television and, and film. But Bonnie is like, you know what? I'm going to bring in a black girl for this. Why not? Right. That's what you need. Somebody to say, why not? Yeah, and, and truthfully, it was the, the moment that was pure for me was when in the room full of a bunch of white guys yeah. and no one brought it up yeah. and nobody cared. And I, legitimately, nobody cared. And I was like, oh, you know, That's and, a little as bit I'm progress. raising daughters, That's I'm like, unusual, oh, though, just okay, so everybody goodness. knows. It's yeah. very unusual. Know, it's usually a hundred conversations. Yes. Well, th- this is the thing I kind of was You're wondering about. And, and Brad, I think you can speak to this a little bit. You know, what what is the role, what is your role in casting and what are these conversations that go on? Because you hear about casting things that, you know, have to go through different levels and it's conversations among creators and studio and network and casting agents and all of these people. What, what's happening in those conversations? Well, hopefully you're getting to, like what Jen said, the essence of the characters is what you really want to find. You, so the pro, talking a little more about process. So, you know, a writer makes a deal with us. Then we develop that script along with them. We narrow it down to, say, maybe three or so pilots that we're going to then actually make. And then that's when you bring on a casting director. Maybe it's someone they've worked with, a producer's worked with before. Or if it's not, then it's an opportunity for us to hopefully make a marriage happen that's going to be a productive marriage. And um, because they are really the person in the trenches with that producer, hopefully finding those essences. Mm -hmm. And And it's taking the script... Um, and those things that the writers used to describe the characters, she's short or whatever, she, she's this, she's that, and finding what they're trying to say about the essence of that character, but then kind of 
no offense, ignoring the specifics about those characteristics, the, the physicality of those mm-hmm. characteristics, because it can be anything, is what we like to think. We had this show called Graceland, where it was about surfing detectives. <laughs> and um, it's USA. What are you going to do? Um, what? <laughs> and, um, you know, the, guy, the main guy was described as, like, you know, kind of a burnt-out hippie, um, long hair, comes off the surfboard, blah, 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 blah. Well, the reality is you, you can write anything, and it's always perfect in your mind, that person. But then the reality is you need to deal with who's available at that time that you're making that pilot, how can you afford the people that you're making this pilot with? And a lot of different variables come into play. And ultimately, um, this guy, Daniel Sanjata, who's had a huge, amazing, amazing, huge theater New York. Career, played the burnt out hippie. Yeah. <laughs> How so, many times do you think he's seen Hamilton? <laughs> a bunch, I bet. He knows everybody in Hamilton. He's got some, he's yes, theater some theories. Yeah. Yes. Um, so you, but we found the essence of that guy without having the, the, physical thing that was described in the script so it's it's finding that essence and um that so then we're early we're our network and studio because i work for both we're early on in the process of developing hopefully developing the script with the with the uh producers and then having a hand with your casting director through the process hopefully guiding or or just if sometimes producers have very clear visions and very uh, in-depth knowledge of what the talent's out there and, and what the talent can do, and, and that happens, and a lot of times you need to guide it a little more heavily. So, it, it, again, it just depends on, on the situation. Sure. So, so that's, that's kind of what, what I think it's about. It's about finding the essence, like Jen said, of, of those characters and bringing them to life without getting bogged down in, in preconceived notions or, or, or specifics about, you know, words that are on right. the page. Yeah, and that's like, and you know, that just comes from, and for me personally, Tracy, even though too, you know, I worked um, in film. My, most of my career, I've been doing this 21 years, and I worked in film with my, with my, uh, my boss for eight years, and we did The Aviator, okay? So we need to cast um, Ava Gardner and Jean Harlow and, uh, you know, God, who else? Errol Flynn. I mean, people that really lived, existed. And, and what Marty said is, like, it doesn't have to be a spot on. We don't want lookalikes. We don't want people who look exactly like these real people who lived. They need to have that person's essence. That's where I learned that. I didn't get that myself. And, that's, and that was really where I was taught that. And I think that in especially things that are already like comic books or whatever, uh, stories that have already have a fan base, people know what they are. Um, it's hard because the fan, I mean, like I'm sure when you were doing it, I know like, you know, I cast Scott Pilgrim and like, and I'm not dropping names either, but Scott Pilgrim was a comic book thing. And when we were casting it, people were on like, Twitter wasn't that big yet, but it was like Facebook and they were, you know, they were emailing or, or, or doing whatever to Edgar yeah. Wright saying, you have to cast this person. How could you cast this person as, you know, as, as, uh, as, as any of the characters, Ramona or whoever it was, you know? So there's pressure. There's pressure from that too that you don't want to listen to, but it's it's still it's important. So. It's it's interesting because it's called fan casting, yes. and almost everything that comes out the next day, it's already been fan cast yes. by very um, <laughs> creative and energetic people. And well, and it's out of passion. And it, it I know, it's complete is. beautiful fan, yeah. pure love, yes. right? Yeah. And then it turns totally. dark yes. because you the, because you have listened you. to them. No, because a lot of the casting it, it it involves if like time and space and more 
immortality didn't matter. Yes. Like, you should get Edward G. Robinson. Yeah, to be. Exactly. I'm like, I would, but he has passed. Or they'd be, and, like, or they'd be like, Brad Pitt, and you're like, he doesn't do television. And then the other side is when some actors get so attached through fan casting that when it, uh, the miracle of it actually happening actually happens, and they're like... You're not. Uh, they just think it's their role. <laughs> you know, we've we've gotten that. Yeah, yeah. like that's pretty great. Yeah. I've never heard that. Like, yeah. They're like, yeah, it's like, of course, this person. I should play this person. I am this person. Yeah, I, the I, internet I, thinks so. Yeah, yeah. And, but but what it but is? But then the actors are think so too. You know. The overall is that is that the character then becomes it, it, it's uh, the the fans feel ownership of it. Mm-hmm. You know, and and that's a beautiful thing. But yeah, it could also be a big trap. Yeah, it can be a dangerous yeah. thing, especially yeah. with social media like it is uh, today. We never had this before. I mean, just this is well, just what I think is, is interesting, and there's no solution about this. I don't know if this will change over time, but that you can have in Hamilton, you can have a, a black person play Thomas Jefferson, but in Aviator, I don't. You know, you might not have cast an Ava Gardner lookalike, but it would have been an interesting conversation to cast someone black as Ava Gardner. Yeah, so and that's we do also have and that's 13 that, like, years ago. So yes. you're, it's also a whole different world when I was casting that film, and, and we did want. I mean, it's a, it's a historical film. Of course, we want to cast. But it even today, I mean, too, I think we know. have that. It's like there's a there's a thing of in TV or film. Maybe the look doesn't matter, but you feel like the race, gender, age should, and maybe that's appropriate. Maybe because uh, there's a higher expectation that you'll be closer to reality. But it's just interesting that, yeah. uh, like, we like the race should be the same, but the look can be different. Well, and, and on orange too, you know, I'm constantly casting flashbacks, so you know, I have no, I have no wiggle room there. It's if it's like, you know, if it's it's supposed to be, you know, whoever Tasty's father, or Tasty, you know, if we have an African American character, and I've taken, and I've to cast their, you know, their parents or the like, or you know, um, Laurie Tanchin who played, you know, plays Chang. It's like I have to cast Asians. Like, there's, I don't, I can't, be, I can't do blind casting in that. I have to portray a family uh, appropriately. That's you know? what I was going to say. Yeah. Oftentimes, there, it's the big difference between casting a family and casting a workplace. Right. A workplace where you can, have, you can have a, a random, random bunch. Yeah. yeah. On Grace and Frankie, we have eight series regulars that are all in the family, same family. Not nobody married anybody, and then they have the. Um, adopted son really quite purposefully so that we didn't have eight Caucasian series regular. That is the funny thing about family shows, how many of them have an adopted child because you don't want the all-white Yeah. Um, I appreciate appreciate the principle of it, though, that that we're trying to make efforts the way we can. We... We, I haven't worked on things like Aviator or anything like that. We're making fictitious television. We like to say we're not making documentaries, so it doesn't always have to adhere to the lines that you need it to. It, you can be a little more free with, with the casting of it because we're not making documentaries. We're making entertainment television. So a lot of times over in the shows that we make, it, it is a little all over the place with our casting. It doesn't... You might... It might pose a question, especially on sci-fi, anything can is possible. It's going to make the audience ask questions, but how is he related to so-and-so? But it, it's never addressed, because why does it need to be? Sure. And that's the greatest thing about fantasy and sci-fi. Yeah, it's that, Yeah, you have so much... Uh, you just have so much. Uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Freedom. Freedom. Yeah. yeah. Oh, isn't that a nice thing? Yeah. Are there? Uh, uh, have any of you ever had to fight for diversity casting? Yes. Can you talk about that? No. <laughs> Can you talk about it elliptically? Because I, I I love the people I work for, and I you don't we don't I don't want to incriminate anybody. I mean, it's always a struggle. I mean, you're and it's not even just for diversity casting. It's for the right actor. I don't even you know yeah. to me. I mean, if we're going to talk about blind casting, it's for the right actor. And 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 I have had you know I mean I've I've had 
struggles trying to get the right white caster, white actor cast, you know? As, as, as many as I've had to get somebody who maybe wasn't written as African-American to get cast as well, you know? I mean, and, and unfortunately, and obviously no offense to networks, because NBC, the cable one, is much cooler than, like, the regular <laughs> ABC, NBC, Fox, and, and, oh, I'm, and, I'm, and they know it. I, I, I tell it to their faces, and I pass on everything. Because they, they don't have that sort of, they don't give you that leeway or let you really kind of experiment. I mean, you've, hopefully you've had a better experience, but in casting, I mean, by at our level, and it's also they talk to creators differently than they talk to casting. By the way, so um, so uh, they want to look all politically correct to you, and then to us, they're like, "You have to cast this white," you know. And it's just yeah. um, we need a star. No, yeah, I, I find that, that, that the mandates these days are not you have to cast it white. The mandates yeah. are you have to get diverse actors right. in there. Yeah. And that has its own complications, too, because then again, are you casting the right actor, the perfect person, or are you, are you sacrificing that so that ABC or whoever, not ABC necessarily, but like CBS can say, we have, so, we have such a diverse network, you know? But you have to wonder, and, I, and this is something I thought about a lot before we came yeah. here today, and Justin and I talked about it briefly, mm-hmm. um, is that just the stage we're in before we get to the stage where it isn't a mandate and it isn't mm-hmm. a thing and a conversation and a compromise or a wonder. Um, and so is it a good thing or are we stuck in this kind of bad thing where uh, I honestly know for a fact on a pilot I cast recently that we cast the wrong actress mm-hmm. because we wanted a diverse choice? Um, I mean, as much of a fact as it can be. Fact. I had it on a pilot a couple years ago, too, for NBC. Not your NBC. Another one. And the right actress was white, but they made me see hundreds and hundreds. Like, it was the only time I ever read. Like, you know, people are like, they've read 1,500,000 people for this part. I don't, I, that's suspect. But um, um, but the, I, I read, we counted. I read 300 girls for this part um, of all colors. And, and the girl that was the strongest was white. And they made me hire a, a Latino actress. But I hope and hope and hope that this is just growing pains, and, and that's where we are. In well, I wonder, of- I wonder if we're facing a similar thing that we're facing in the writing side of it, which is that, you know, there haven't been opportunities for women and people of color for so long that we're not getting the upper level women and people of color to run shows, right? They also they have to go through this crash course really fast. Are we facing that with actors as well, where, you know, a network wants a star, and I don't think they care what that race is very often, but they want a star. That's one level. We, as creators, want someone great, right? We want someone who can pull off the role. That's another level. Good creators. Smart. Sure. <laughs> well, some creators want famous people not, on the air. And, they get, yeah, and that'll get, that's what they'll get. Well, and ideally, you're getting both, right? You're getting someone who is great and a star. Do we just not have the raw material to work with because people of color have not had the opportunities in 40 years of television? Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, I have to dig. I have to really look. I have to, there's a lot of, I mean, Tracy knows we have to pre-read hundreds of actors to find, you know, and again, like this is like any race, you know, I hate just, I know this is what this topic is or whatever, but you know, you, you do this a long time and you know a lot of actors, but sometimes if there's something very specific, like, I mean, you know, like on Orange, I had to find like an African, oh, no, I had to find a, it was for Pusey's backstory, right? So she's in Germany. So poor Samira had to learn German to do this, okay? Because the whole thing is her father was on a, an army base out there. And, and I yelled, and the writer who I love, Stephen Falk, who does, you're the, you're the worst now. But he said, I wrote him an email. I was like, 
you motherfucker. <laughs> now you're going to make me find. Not only, like, I had to find, like, an 18-year-old who looks 16, Caucasian, fluently German-speaking girl. That's one thing. Then I had to find African-American actors who spoke German in New York to play these pivotal roles. Not saying that African-Americans don't speak German, but, like, like not many people in general speak German so fluently. And then, okay, that's in the, in the population. Then narrowed down to actors, okay? Then narrowed down to good actors, and, you know, and who's around. So, I mean, like, yeah, so basically, they can throw at you, and I've been throwing everything. I mean, I mean Jen, you could be like, okay, I need a two-headed, uh, a two-headed uh, little person who, one, that one head's... Asian, but the other head, you can go, you can go like like a Caribbean or like East Indies, and and but that one has to has to speak Swedish, and um, and you need to find this in five days. Uh, I'm curious to hear, and then we'll we'll get some questions from you guys about specific casting challenges, and that's a great way. It's in. It's not even a challenge anymore. I'm like, all right, <laughs> it's part of the job at this point. Um, but all little people in America. Let's I'll let's talk it. about uh, Superstore for a second. Were there specific casting challenges in that show? Well, you know, it's funny. I um, I've de- I've done three pilots now that I went through the casting process, including Superstore. The others, I had more challenges. In terms of some of the diversity stuff, you know, if you, the, an early conversation you always have when you get something picked up is where is the diversity going to be? And I've always done, I, I haven't done family shows, I've done like workplace or ensemble, so it's a little easier. Um, but some of those, you know, it was tricky, like you're down, you need to find like someone diverse for that role, and it, it, it became much, they were more difficult conversations. The thing about Superstore, is that's funny is we've gotten I feel like a lot of credit for casting this diverse cast and it was the easiest thing in the world I think just because really good people who were diverse came in and we just cast the best people for each role literally every single role and it it doesn't usually happen like that and it's so it's so funny that um that uh so we can say yes we were race blind but you know, if the seven best people that came in were all white, that would be a whole very different conversation. But for us, it was just very, very simple. Can I ask you a question, though? Did yeah. you, when you wrote the pilot, did you write each of those characters, the races that you ended up casting? No, the only, I just wrote it uh, without any race in mind, except for one character, Mateo, uh, because again, you want to show a network like, oh, look, it's a diverse group. <laughs> so that character was a, a tough Mexican immigrant from the streets. Right. We and ended up casting Mateo. An, yes, Mateo. We ended up casting see that. Yes. But we ended up casting an extremely gay Filipino I know. I actor. love the show. Uh, so we went a totally exactly. different way. Who's your casting director? Uh, Susie Ferris did the pilot. She's um, one. I, my first job, Susie Ferris, we were assistants together on Law & Order in 1987. 1997, sorry. I'm not that old. I mean, I'm old. I'm 41. But like, in 1997, Susie, Susie's one of my dearest friends. Yeah. And she always, always, ever since we started, was she would always bring in really interesting, totally against what was written ideas to try, you know? And that's sort of like how we were trained. And it's, and it's, and I like, but sometimes, and sometimes hopefully you have open creators and open network to let you do it. And a lot of times you don't. Again, no offense, but it's, you know, it's like. And I'll say, speak to one other challenge or something that you think about is you, the only time I've been faced with, oh, should this person be diverse, is where we're casting someone that could be perceived as we're playing 
playing to a stereotype. So and it looks token, and it looks so well, gratuitous. Yeah, well, there's tokenism, which is a whole other thing, too, but also just, like, we have a pregnant teenager in the show. So I was like, I don't know if I want someone black or Latina playing that part, because I'm going to be accused of stereotyping that that's the thing, and we end up casting someone who is uh, half Japanese. But, I mean, like, you're just aware of that, and you don't want to think about that stuff, but you have to think what is the perception going to be, um, which I think is... And again, I think it's with the introduction of social media and how so much now the fans talk back, talk about, accuse, bring things up that even in the like the executives, the creators, the casting directors would have never even thought of in the first place, you know? So I think that changes the whole dynamic too. You know, you have to anticipate like, so if we do this, like what you had to do. So if we do this, if we cast like a Latino African-American pregnant girl, is that saying something about what I think about? Right other races, you know, so it's, it's really, it's, it's, it's become so complicated, you know, um, thinking of a challenge too. And, and this just made me think of this and I don't know what the answer is, but, um, if we have a guest star and of course I want, I, I want to be open and I feel often, uh, because we have such a white cast on Grace and Frankie that the guest stars are great opportunities to, move it around a little so uh but i wonder often when i have a casting session and i have a big variety but all only diverse actors out there because i want some diversity in this you know waitress uh what they feel like when they sit in the waiting room and there are three black ones three latino ones and three asian ones and i think I, I don't know. I'd like an answer from somebody. I don't know. To me, it feels a little tokeny, weird, mm-hmm. bad. Sure. And, and this may be, like you say, the phase. This may be the growing pains that, that everybody is going through in the industry. And, you know, in five years... It's it's a meritocracy. Something that puts yeah. that in perspective for me is we shoot a lot of our shows around the world. I think we shoot two shows in Los Angeles, a few in New York. Other than that, we're South Africa, Australia. We did a show in Jerusalem. We're all over the place. A lot of Canada. And the issues there are more, much more deep-seated and less progressive a lot of times um, than we are here in America. So I appreciate that, especially places like South Africa where the idea to cast something not white it doesn't even enter people's mind a lot of time and how could that person be this and and so you're you're combating that um i don't feel that a lot of times here which i appreciate but it is definitely something yeah the stakes are much higher then yeah. you know and you that and it's also it's like socioeconomic mm-hmm. cultural like and then pl- and political stuff yeah. that we can't even comprehend here you know yeah. so that's yeah i, I was just gonna uh, mention something about tokenism for, which is a little different sure. kind of subject but it was interesting to me when i read reviews when my show came out that a lot of the reviews, some people were like, oh, great, it's a diverse cast. Again, we were not trying to, like, pat ourselves on the back for it. It was just a feature of the show. Um, But a number of uh, things, reviews or podcasts or whatever, accused us of tokenism because the roles didn't have to be diverse. And, you know, I remember one reviewer was like, well, they had to have the black guy and and the Asian and the two Latina, even though they were calling one of our Asian characters Latina. It was like the whole other thing. But then um, I looked... Maybe you don't have to listen to all of the reviews. I don't... No, no, no. You don't have to listen to all reviews. Um, But I saw this 
this trend a little bit, and then I read certain reviews about um, Blackish telenovela. Um, uh, what are some of the other? What's that? Carmichael. Carmichael. Yeah. yeah, yeah, fresh off the boat shows, and they were generally lauded for being diverse shows, mm. and it felt to me like the difference. And and you know, to a certain extent, I'm, I'm cherry picking things that support what I'm feeling, but what <laughs> was that? Uh, it's like when this diverse cast was part of that world. We're doing the world of, say, telenovelas, or we're doing a family show about Asian people or about black people. Then that's something to... Then that's something to be commended. But because there was no reason for us to have so much diversity, people thought the reason must be tokenism, that we're just trying to check all these boxes, um, which was just sort of interesting. Can I ask you something, though? Because uh, cause I'm wondering if you got any of this kind of response, because you know, yours is set in a, in a store, right? So it's like a Walmart or Target. Yep. And you have all the employees, minorities. Now, is that saying something? That only minorities can get, can get jobs... Or they're the only people that work those jobs. They're not white people, you know. They're 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 minorities. Well, we have a few. I mean, we have yes. three no, of our staff. I know you do, but I'm just saying, like, token with, white people. It, with that being, <laughs> I love that. I love that. But um, that, that's what I was wondering. Like, did you get like like kind of like backlash from that too? Because I can see that being a, a a point that somebody would bring up. Like, oh, we can only work at like McDonald's, or we can only work at you know Walmart or something. So no, nothing I ever read or heard. But good. Uh, yeah, I'll be I tweeting. I'll be tweeting later know. about yeah, it. Yeah, so. that's it. Well, that's you. You you brought up something before. Let's talk about the the real plus side of this um, for us writers is um, when now the actors are cast and um, they're bringing an energy that is different from your life view and your life experience and your perspective and just becomes, ooh, and now we get to look like smart people because <laughs> we're basically stealing their life force yeah, and putting absolutely. it into our work. And, and on our show, we have Charlotte Copley is our lead, and he's from South Africa, and Susan is from Atlanta, and uh, Alicia is from Russia. I mean, she's born in Russia. And so our, and Eddie Izzard is on our show, and it's just ooh. like, but, but you couldn't imagine just a more diverse group. And we we were having a conversation about this up in Emerald City Con up there in Seattle, and Susan Hayward said something about everyone's so focused on diversity of skin color that really the focus should be diversity on perspective and diversity on experience. And that's what's missing from the writing across the board. And, and, that, and, and I, when she worded it so clearly, and it seems so obvious, but I, I've been fumfering for those words for about six years. <laughs> so I go, may I please steal that and pretend I... Because it, it is, when you see it come together, when you see people of different experience, when you see an Eddie Izzard and a Charlotte Copley where other than acting, you couldn't imagine a room where they would be in together. And, but they're crackling together. Yeah. Just like, look, look how much, look how interesting this is, right? Uh, you, you know, that's really where we get to have a lot of fun now. And then, and then you feel like, oh no, no, it's not about diversity. Like, oh, look how everyone looks different. It's like, look at all these different life forces coming together to make something. That feels more real because that's what real life ends up being. And also, and also, and I said this at the last panel last year. You know, diversity doesn't just mean different races. You know, diversity means more women, um, unattra- not unattractive people. Let's say, let's say. Oh, I hope you're right. Unconventionally. <laughs> Pretty it's or like handsome. character actors. We used to call them character actors. Yeah, but, but and I still do. But you know, on Orange, I don't. It's not just yeah. about different races. I have skinny girls, heavy girls, old ladies, young ladies, um, character actors, beauties. It's everything, and all of that has to be included in diversity, not just black or white. You know, I mean, it's like it's like all shapes and sizes. 
you know, and colors. I mean, it's just, but like that's, I think that the term diversity gets so limited to just uh, ethnicity when Jesus Christ, you know, there's so many people who just because they don't look the right way have only been, you know, been relegated to playing like garbage man number one for the past 10 years when they could shine as, as something so much bigger in a show, you know? So I don't know. It's, that's just a thing I have with the term diversity that's used in the media because they don't include all of these other types, body types, faces, everything. Like you were saying, experiences. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, that's diversity, you know? That's why, you know, yeah, I mean, I just, I have so many, obviously, opinions on this, but it's like... Follow Jen on Twitter. It's like, but like, look, but look, Tracy, Cass, Grace, and Frankie, okay? The two leads are women, how old? Over 70 is all I'll say. Right. (laughs) So, so what network is casting women that old to be the leads of their show? Tell me right now. Well, well, likewise, we can look at Orange is the New Black. Like, who? Why don't I look network? at Orange is the New Black? I want to look at other shows that, like, you know, <laughs> I look at Orange is the New Black all year, but, like, um, I wish I could look but at But I'm all just, year. like, I'm just saying that, like, just as an example, you know, yes, they're white, but they're older women who haven't had jobs in how many years? Older actresses. Not you know? since the Golden Girls. Yeah. Truly. Like, what happened to that? We were good in the 80s, and then all of a sudden, everybody has to be 20 years old? Screw that, you know? And you know that script went other places, and people said no it did. Yes, I, I know exactly who turned it down. So, <laughs> so it's just, I mean, and, and it's not just networks. It's, it's also, it can be cable stuff, too. It's not just that. It could be your HBOs. Orange went everywhere. Netflix yeah. was the only one that took it. Wow. Yeah, yeah. All right. I want to make sure we get questions from you guys. Uh, I'm going to have you, I'm going to point to you and you're going to ask your question. Let me repeat it, please, uh, for the recording. And uh, then we'll get God, going. We're being recorded. Right I know. I was like, well, <laughs> what? <laughs> Shoot. Um, so how do you feel about certain actors being cast? You know the phrase vaguely ethnic? I don't know if you've <laughs> Um, I've never written that, but yes, I've heard it. It's bandied about. So, for example, I have a friend who is Indian. I I need you to ask the question much faster. (laughs) I have a friend who's Indian, but he often, he looks more uh, of Arabic descent, you know, Persian, so he gets cast in those roles. How do you feel about the sort of interchangeableness of, well, people from this place look like this? And then if there's a wide range, for example, India, of how people look there, but Mm -hmm. it doesn't fit the stereotype, they don't get cast as what their ethnicity is. As long as it's not, like, um, Orson Welles in blackface playing Othello, (laughs) um, I'm good with the best actor playing the part. I mean, there's some instances where we want the authenticity. In Orange, that's very specific. The season that's coming out, all our new prisoners are Dominican. They had to be Dominican. Now, I can't ask that in the room. I can't ask you what your ethnicity is by SAG rules. But I do my research and figure out who the Dominican actresses were in New York. Because we had to be true to to that to the, for the story be true to that to that um, to that ethnicity so so when well, it's, and, and, when, yeah, and when like happens. Brian said you're gaining something by having that specificity of course of, their of course experience. but there are other instances where you know what if your friend looks Persian even if he's Indian and it's the part he was the best person for the part I think that's fine. You know, I don't, I don't find anything wrong with that. Do you? I mean, it's just like, unless it's specified by your showrunner, your creator, or the network saying, this person actually has to be of the descent that he's playing, you know? And I had that when I did a, the miniseries, of uh, Path to 9-11, on ABC. Our director said, for all the 9-11 terrorists that we had to cast, he wanted the actors to be the exact, from the exact same places those terrorists were from. Okay. 
<laughs> crying every day, just so you all know. Um, but but that is an instance where it was important for them, for this this guy, this director, who was really wonderful, that the actors had to be the same as those people. So again, it's a fictional, you know, fiction versus nonfiction too. So this will come up more in something that's nonfiction than in something fictional. You have a little more, you know, leeway on, on fiction. So, but I'm interested in how he feels about right. That. Yeah, yeah. I I think we don't know. He's not here. Yeah. We gotta get some more questions. <laughs> right here. <laughs> yeah, I know. I'd be curious because I've asked I've asked actors, asked actors that too. Too. Uh, we got, we want to make sure we have out. enough time for yeah. everybody's questions. Jen, stand up, please. I, I, I already said I talk too much. I don't. I don't care. You know. Uh, Brad started kind of talking about this, but um, now it, the international markets are more and more important to like the sale and success of a television show, and. And as you kind of talked about, sometimes diversity in other markets or regions is not as preferable or desirable. Do you guys find yourselves having to, like, compromise for that so that it's successful overseas? The question is about uh, international sales and how diversity casting might weigh in on that. Yeah, it's always, it's always um, something we talk about on the network side not personally in the casting process, but once now we've made the show, hopefully they're going to say that either that's going to sell well or it's not going to sell well because of your cast or because of the subject matter or whatever it is. Um, and that's a big, especially for the studio component, they're going to make a lot of their money from international sales and things like that. Um, we try not to do it too much, listen to it too much on our end, um, but it is a voice that's definitely strong. Um, and to the point of shooting internationally, we also we have casting directors in many locations. So if we're shooting a show in South Africa, we'll have a British casting director, we'll have a, an American casting director, we'll have a South African casting director, so that you're hopefully supplementing your cast to the best way possible. Because of course, the show's not set in South Africa; it's set in Las Vegas. <laughs> um, so you, you know, you want it to look like that. So you try to combat it that way. But it's definitely a conversation about yeah, if you're going to sell internationally and make that money. Great. Uh, there was someone yes back here. Stand up, please. No, 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 no. I think it's it's a good question and one we were uh, ready for and thought a, a lot, a lot about. Um, and yeah, in the in the writing of it, that character was in a wheelchair. And what I wanted to do was just say, like, this is a diverse group of employees, not just in terms of race, but in terms of lots of, of, of different features. And that character was just going to be like... A cool guy who is, like, if you were going to describe him, the wheelchair would be, like, number six on the list. He's just, like, an awesome guy, and it, it's, like, the, the point of putting him in the wheelchair was that there was no point that that character should be in a wheelchair. Um, so that was the idea. We wanted, ideally, to cast someone who was in a wheelchair. That would have been the ideal, but you're just... It's hard to find the right actor anyway, and you're it's just limited limiting pool. Your, your pool. And handicapped so, actors is limited. And so we definitely did read people. We finally came to Colton. Colton blew everyone else out of the water. He was fantastic. And then we had the conversation, and frankly, I was uh, proposing, let's just take him out of the wheelchair. Like, let's not get the pushback and, and have people feel like we're discriminating and is that a bag of worms we want to open? And um, I think it was Bob Greenblatt, the head of NBC, to his credit, that was like, yeah, but then we're just... We're not telling those stories, and like, what's better here? So it wasn't that we uh, 
we cast someone not in a wheelchair to play someone in a wheelchair. By the end, it's we are casting Colton Dunn. Do we want that character? Do we want Garrett to be a guy in a wheelchair and have that guy or not? And um, that was the origin. Right. We have time for a couple more. Uh, incidentally, did you consider going the other way and just breaking Colton's legs every couple weeks? <laughs> I'm going to cast you. Right here. <laughs> Um, I'm just curious about, it seems like there's a greater push for inclusivity and diversity in casting. I'm curious, um, generally, if there's more of a push to have more people of color as casting directors or to have people at higher levels, because I feel like, you know, as uh, white people in the business, we can kind of talk about diversity and trying to find people of color and diverse people to bring into the shows, but then I feel like there's a level above that where these people need to be included in all levels. Good question. Right? Is there is there a push for diversity behind the scenes, particularly in casting? Well, I'll say at Universal, we have a casting apprenticeship, which is a diversity initiative um, to develop diverse casting directors, and they'll do uh, a, a time with us in cable. They'll spend some time at NBC. They'll go to features, and it's about a year or two rotation, and we're now in the third uh, the third round of that, So, and that, that specific reason is to develop first casting directors because ultimately there aren't that many when it comes down to it. Okay. Uh, but, but I think that's pretty unique. Uh, no, it's very unique and it never it didn't exist before so it's a great opportunity because people really don't even know what casting is so how are you going to get you know people to do it any people to do it and then lay over that like diverse people to do it you know so that's an, it's an excellent thing. Okay that is about all the time we have but I want to ask you guys one question starting here with Brad. What are you watching on television these days? What do you love? What are you talking about with your colleagues, your loved ones, etc.? Am I supposed to be, do propaganda right now? Nope. Mr. Robot. Everybody watch Mr. Robot. <laughs> uh, what do you, but, but, what do you uh, actually My love? favorite non-show of mine is Ameri- The Americans. I love The Correct answer. Bend us. I'm really into what Netflix is doing with comedy. I think Lady Dynamite is an amazing thing, and it's doing stuff about subject matters that you've never seen done before so all, all everything Netflix comedy Master of None and Lady Dynamite being a perfect example by the way Master of None talks about everything we just talked about <laughs> in great detail from the perspective it should be spoken about so I highly recommend that for this audience thank you Jen I am so because I love sci-fi horror genre stuff so that's what I watch I'm so digging iZombie it's freaking great right. and then the one that I'm just like just fell madly in love with is Preacher Dude, like, watch this if you can watch it. Another comic book. Another comic comic book. It's fantastic. It's on AMC. Cool. Tracy. Thank you. Watching comedy. Um, Loving the multicams. That's my world. So I'm happy that there still are some. And somebody's still keeping trying to do the multicams. But um, Silicon Valley, you're the worst. Love those two. Great answers. Justin? Um, let's see. Uh, I love Mr. Robot. I can't wait for the next season. Uh, I'm just catching up on the Americans uh, now. Just from, I'm on season two, but it's great. Um, I watch uh, Game of Thrones, Silicon Valley. Nathan for you, I love. Hey, he's, so funny. For you. he's so funny. Thank you, guys. Please give a round of applause to all of our panelists. Brad DeLima, Brian Michael Bendis, Jen Houston, Tracy Williamfield, Justin Spitzer. Thank you, guys. Now leaving Nerdist.com.